Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rulur Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, and I am joining you from Colorado in the United States. And today I want to talk clothing. It's been a weird year here in Colorado uh, when it comes to weather. Uh, Usually uh, right around May or June, it gets really hot and stays that way and dry. We don't get a whole lot of rain. This year was different. Uh, I was joking with with Peter Stewart, uh, who I often have on the show here, uh, that in Colorado this spring, we had very London-like weather. <laughs> it was wet and uh, chilly. Uh, that has since dissipated, and now we are into our more typical dry conditions. But that, that interesting spring for me uh, really put a focus on clothing, uh, what I'm wearing every time I go out on the ride. And in that respect, I think uh, clothing in general has gone through sort of a uh, uh, an identity crisis in the last 10 years or so uh, when it comes to cycling clothing. And uh, we've seen it become more fashionable, uh, better fitting, uh, and really more functional with the advent of new uh, technologies and, and materials. So it's been really a, a wonderful time to be a cyclist if you're, if you're into fashion at all and certainly into functionality. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. And in order to get at the heart of that and, and sort of learn a little bit more about that, I have on the line joining me all the way from London today, uh, Mr. Graham Rayburn, who is the lead designer of Albion Cycling Clothing. Uh, Graham, thanks for joining me today. Uh, pleasure to be here, Dan. Thank you for the, for the invite. Yeah, and of course. And uh, so for those of you who are not familiar, Albion Cycling started in uh, 2017. Uh, Graham, you started with them at the beginning of this year. Um, and before that, you were with Rafa and, and sort of on the, the ground floor of what it was like to uh, see Rafa sort of take over the, the cycling clothing world. So let's start there. Um, give me a sense of how your journey in design led you to Rafa and now to Albion. Like, where did you start? What were your initial interests in design? Um, how did that lead you to cycling? Uh, give me that sort of journey that you went on to get where you are. Um, certainly, um, I, I don't think anyone in, in design or, or art has, a, has anything like a normal trajectory at all or career. Um, I, I did start, um, I did a, a BA and then a master's in fashion um, at the, the Royal College of Art where I was interested in functional design and the, the way that we were moving through cities um, uh, the, the, um, and what modern technology in, in fabric allowed us to do um, with, with clothing and accessories. 
Um, I ended up working as a bike mechanic. Um, cycling had always been a huge part of my life um, as, as um, a way of getting around town, as a, as a sport, as a pursuit. Um, and um, sort of completely almost by chance um, ended up with a, a meeting with the founders of, of Rafa. Uh, Simon and Luke, um, my brother Chris uh, and I had a, a, a studio space where we were able to turn designs around very quickly. Um, so we could go in for a meeting, talk about something, and turn up the next week with a design. Um, so in that respect, I kind of um, fell into it um, completely by luck. Um, there was no um, there was no kind of plan to become um, a cycleware designer, um, but it was a very interesting space point I think um, with cycling uh, particularly in the UK um, things were happening like the Olympics had just been announced um, and there was this real desire for um, high quality good looking clothing which which Rafa do so remarkably well um, and I was extremely lucky to to be able to be part of that journey for uh, for over 10 years. And, you know, while you were at Rafa, um, what, what was your role and what was it like to sort of see cycling clothing's look and feel get essentially redesigned in real time? And, and why was that so important to you as a designer? I think it's one of those things where you probably don't notice it when you're in the thick of it, like at the time as it's happening. But that passage of time passing um, is, is really fascinating. And an example of that might be, for instance, if you look at, say, um, a tour leader's jersey um, over over 10 years, you know, if you compare, uh, you know, a, a yellow jersey now to one from 10 years ago and look at the advances in, uh, in the fabric, in the aerodynamics, in the fit. Um, and so actually those those changes are made very, very, um, in very small amounts, really um, incremental ones, like the, the fabric gets five grams lighter each year, the zipper slides easier, the pocket design is improved by a tiny amount, really small quantities every every season, but actually then you put that over five years, over 10 years, and actually there's a huge difference starts to change. And so for you, it was this incremental, slow process, so it wasn't something that just sort of one day you were in a room and said, we're going to revolutionize cycling clothing today. No, exactly. I think it's very much the, the, an evolution of building on the experience. Um, uh, there are um, really fascinating you know, changes that happen in terms of the material technology and scene construction, um, which um, you, know, you go along to a fabric show and you see something you never thought would be possible. You know, two years ago, five years ago, fabrics get lighter, more stretchy, more breathable. Um, you know, they're more durable for, for kind of their weight. Um, and, and at the same time, often looking better as well, like looking much more desirable. One of, the, one of the things I think often gets overlooked when it comes to clothing design, especially in cycling, is, is, is like you mentioned, uh, seams. Uh, you know, we've, we've sort of come from, I remember, you know, riding jerseys back in, uh, you know, just even the early 2000s where the, the seam was what you would get on any normal shirt. And it was kind of bulky and thick. And now we have so many other ways of, of attaching panels of, of uh, materials. Did those methods uh, evolve independently of the material choices? Or was that something that came about because new materials came along? Like, for example, uh, laser welding, you know, seams and things like that. Often these technologies are borrowed from other other industries. Um, cycling as a market is relatively uh, small, um, you know, compared to uh, other active sports, outdoor, um, snow sport and things like that. Um, 
And actually, that's one of the reasons I think that it was able to develop um, and accelerate quite rapidly uh, over a relatively short space of time uh, because of the, the, the overall growth in the market. So, yeah, a lot of these um, technologies are, are kind of transplanted from, from other areas. Um, and maybe that's where, you know, the, the role of the designer to be able to see those things um, and identify like what might work, you know, might, what might really optimize um, a, a certain area. Um, having said that, there's a lot of technology that is um, very, you know, decades old and it's still working perfectly well. And same with fibers, you know, we see that with, you know, the benefits of Merino or, or, or things like that. What about aesthetics? I mean, you think about uh, if I if I think about some of the jerseys I wore in the early 2000s, it's a little bit embarrassing to think about it now. Uh, where, where did you get design elements, uh, you know, at, at Albion and Rafa when you were there? Uh, you know, did, did you borrow elements from other industries like, like you did with technology for, for construction? Or was it sort of a, just a desire to buck whatever trends were happening in, in cycling at that time? I suppose very much at the core of the, the Rafa ethos was um, a celebration of the, the sport and the heritage of the sport. So a lot of that, um, uh, the thinking, the aesthetic was coming from that, whether a, a heritage looking piece or uh, you know, a contemporary uh, thing looking at modern um, racing, um, road racing. Um, Whereas uh, Albion here, um, it's uh, it's very much a, a celebration of the elements um, and the environments. Um, we're designing clothing to help you go outside uh, for longer uh, and, and remain there comfortably for longer. So um, in that respect, a lot of the aesthetic will come out of this desire for the function um, uh, side of things. Um, so there, there's two... Um, I guess you might say kind of quite minimal and pure um, aesthetics, but from very, very different directions and with different objectives. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because uh, I, I saw a commercial recently made the rounds on, on social media, you know, right before the Tour de France started. And it was sort of, uh, you know, this series of, of uh, older middle-aged men and they're dusting off their bikes that have been sitting for a year and they get on their old Lycra that's ill-fitting and, and 20 years old. And that's never been further from the reality uh, than it is now. I mean, everything has sort of uh, become more aesthetically pleasing, acceptable. I mean, on a base level, cycling clothing in general can be a little goofy looking, right? Because it's tight and <laughs> whatever. But uh, we've we really live in a time now of cycling clothing that it has evolved to a point where it's it's quite attractive stuff. Um, and so that's done a lot to sort of change not only the way uh, cyclists are perceived outside of the cycling world, but also the way you feel on the bike. It doesn't feel as much of a uh, uh, a look at me sort of feel. And I think Rafa really helped define that with sort of a simpler aesthetic, you know, that just a simple armband. Um, was that a conscious decision when you were the lead designer over there? Or were there other ideas that you had to sort of keep in that flashier sort of cycling motif? I think that um, you have, uh, there's always a desire to design stuff that you want to wear, that you want to be seen in. So um, all those things that you were saying there about um, maybe shifting people's perception of, um, of you know, what somebody on a bike in Lycra looks like, uh, you know, nobody wants to look like those goofy cyclists. So yeah, um, they're, they're, that 
outward kind of looking aesthetic. But then there are the codes within cycling as well, you know, that you can read and identify through color palettes or trim or, um, you know, kind of uh, the, the typography and things like that that you're, that you're embedding and also uh, uh, this, this kind of message that you're sending out to, to other people on the road. Um, so yeah, it's it's like it's a bit of everything really, um, but it is it, it's fair to say it's come a long way in a relatively short space of time. Yeah, and I think uh, that leads us nicely into your next step, which was to Albion and, and sort of uh, taking those aesthetic lessons from Rafa and uh, and bringing them to a more uh, functional. And not to say Rafa is not functional, but sort of the focus on functionality for a specific type of weather. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, very briefly, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our, uh, our wonderful sponsors. And we'll be right back with Graham Rayburn from Albion Cycling. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinnow, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. Hello, I'm Ian Parkinson from the Ruler Conversations podcast, and I'm joined by Ruler Executive Editor Ian Cleverly. Hello, Ian. Hello, Ian. How can I help? Hold on a sec. Did you hear that? What is it? That, my friend, is the sound of a can of Tuya from Manchester's Trek uh, Brewing being opened. Uh, I was sent a selection of wonderful beers by Graham and Kate from Curators of Craft, and they're a Yorkshire-based company specialising in small-batch craft beers and Trappist ales from around the world. I see. And how is that Tuya going down? It is going down a tree, I tell you. Um, I was just reading up on the taster notes that are sent with it, and it's uh, from Manchester, from Trek Brewing. And you'll not be surprised to hear that Track Brewing is um, run and founded by Sam Dyson, who's a big cycling fan. Did a two-year cycling trip around the world and um, got into his beers wherever he went. So this Curators of Craft, how does it work then? Well, you can either make your own selection from their range of hand-picked quality independent beers, including less-travelled stuff like stouts and pours and wild sours and saisons and all that malarkey, or you leave Kate and Graham's impeccable taste buds to do the picking for you with their curated boxes which is what they've sent me sounds great when can i expect mine then uh sorry mate they don't they're not sending you one i don't think oh great charming well but the good news is there's a 15 percent off code for ruler listeners if you go to curatorsofcraft.co.uk and use the code ruler 15 for your first order over 40 pounds um 15 off deliveries fast both uk and europe everyone's the winner you are, certainly. Cheers, mate. So my name is Oren Peleg, and I'm an investor in LACA. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry, which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people onto wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis, and I believe that Two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around 
companies building on the strong communities that they have. And I think Lacquer's business model in the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment. Welcome back. I am Dan Cavallari. I am coming at you from Colorado, and I am joined by Graham Rayburn, lead designer of Albion Cycling Clothing, who is uh, sitting in the Albion Studios in London. Uh, Graham, thank you again for joining me today. Uh, I want to jump in now to your current. We've talked a lot about your last projects. Let's talk about your current projects. Uh, so I, I was looking through the Albion Cycling uh, Clothing website because I'm, I, you know, in the U S uh, I think the Albion presence is not as big as it is in the UK. And there's a reason for that. I'd say, uh, the weather is, <laughs> is, is tailor made for you guys. Um, but I'm looking through it and, uh, on the website, uh, you say that the clothing is made for British riding conditions. What does that mean to you aside from simply being waterproof and warm? Uh, you know, do the aesthetics work into that definition, the construction processes, things like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not exclusively just uh, kind of wet weather gear, um, but very much being uh, a relatively small um, island country, we encounter a huge variety of different weather conditions that can of often change very quickly. Um, so back to, to what we were saying earlier about the advent of better material technologies and methods of make, uh, these, these fabrics actually allow us to do um, more with uh, more with less, um, maybe is a good, good example of that. So actually we can have uh, more protective garments which are lighter, can be worn in a, in a wider range of environments. Um, but it's not only the weather, um, we've also got a huge variety of terrain in um, relatively short space. Um, so mountains to um, kind of wide open wetland um, areas. Um, we've got uh, not only that, like a uh, um, huge amount of different kind of surfaces, road surfaces and, and, and off-road surfaces um, as well. Um, so that also kind of plays out in um, the types of uh, you know, plants, rock surface, and everything like that, that you get there. So that might be expressed through something like the aesthetic of the the color palette, or something like that, which is harmonious within within the landscape. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's one of the great things about about the UK is we've got this massive diversity in a relatively short space of time um, that you can encounter in some cases in you know four seasons in one day. Um, and to that end, actually, it kind of plays out that um, these versatile products will work extremely well if you are in the mountains, you know, uh, you know, in Europe or, or the US or whatever, where you can, you know, you can have a freezing cold descent, but down into the valley and it's um, 25, 30 degrees, absolutely baking hot, um, hotter still. Um, so, yeah, we, we're kind of really excited about what the materials now allow us to do that perhaps wasn't possible 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, and I think that, that hits the nail on the head. I mean, here in Colorado, we do have we have the Rocky Mountains. And so, just like you said, I mean, you could experience all four seasons in one ride. Uh, you know, there's a saying around here that says, if you don't like the weather in Colorado, just wait five minutes. Uh, and that's very much the case. Uh you know, I can think of a specific example. I climbed Mount Evans, which is a pretty famous climb around here. And at the bottom uh, in town, it was warm and I was in, you know, shorts and short sleeves. And then by the time we got to the top of the mountain, it was 30 some odd degrees, which is Fahrenheit, which is very cold uh, and windy. And then you have to turn around to descend in that. So, you know, multifunctional clothing is not 
exclusive to British riding conditions, it translates well to to everywhere else as well. Um, one of the things that I I have a uh, I have a I, I have a nitpick <laughs> with cycling clothing in general. And I understand why it's a thing, but I, I wonder how this factors into your design elements is the, the whole element of high vis clothing, uh, the bright yellows and the bright oranges, uh, in general, that's been pretty heavy handed in the past, but then more recently, some brands have figured out ways to incorporate that without looking gaudy and awful. What, what's your take on high vis, uh, in, in terms of aesthetic design and how that fits into the the overall ethos of, of Albion. Goodness. Yeah. Uh, how much time have we got? Um, okay. I, 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 I love, um, areas like this, um, really fascinating. So primarily like understanding it from a, um, scientific perspective, what's actually going on, a biological perspective, like the viewer and their, their sense of perception of somebody in a landscape. Um, being absolutely honest, realistically, so those genuine high-vis colors which fluoresce um, under using ultraviolet light in, in daylight, um, you know, at nighttime, there is none of that ultraviolet light. So you kind of create a false perception of that high-vis pop when you actually look at it in a store or, or, or whatever. Um, uh, they are obviously um, for... Um, safety um, checked, uh, you know, they, they, they undergo quantitative testing um, to achieve certain levels of luminosity uh, and they definitely do have a place in some uh, environments, some landscapes. Um, but I think we have to be careful about building the, um, putting the responsibility onto the rider rather than other road users, uh, let's say. Um, and to that end, uh, you know, you have people with all different types of vision um, ability, you know, and perception. So, uh, uh, you know, what's to say somebody operating a, a motor vehicle or whatever won't have a color deficient, color perception deficiency. So what might be perceived as a very optimal color, uh, might exist as a, as a gray to a, to, you know, somebody using a, a vehicle. So I think what we, our approach is actually to um, look to, to, first of all, make them desirable and beautiful. So we do use a lot of brights, um, kind of rich oranges and yellows. Um, so they're actually desirable colors to wear in the first place. Mix them with other things like um, areas of high contrast. Um, that's a very good kind of thing for visibility. So you've got lots of different um, uh, lighting conditions they'll function in. And then also adding in retro-reflective trim, so actually under car headlights, um, very effective on moving parts, um, kind of legs um, out on the, the elbows and things like that to actually make a rider appear as, as big and confident as possible. Um, but I don't think it's kind of quite as straightforward as, as kind of just saying, prescribing, you know, to somebody where Hive is and um, tick, tick that box. I think it's a, I think it's a huge variety and combination of different um, techniques um, and, and things to um, enable the, the wearer uh, to, to be as visible as possible. And as I say, I think making the desire aspect of it, making it appealing, uh, is really critical to do as well. Yeah, I think that that appeal is so important. I mean, if somebody, the, the, the most high-vis piece of gear is not going to do anything for the rider if it's sitting in the rider's closet rather than on his body. 
Uh, and you know, if you don't want to ride it, you're not going to ride it. Um, and I think the other key point there was the movement, the motion, you know, having those, those high vis, uh, reflective materials, on the parts of your body that move, uh, will actually do more to draw the eye of a, of a, of a road user than, than just a bright orange blaze orange, you know, Jersey. Um, yeah. So, and I think, I think, again, I think some, uh, companies have sort of figured that out. And, and more are following that path. So we're seeing less and less of just the, the, sh- the shock of yellow uh, and more more strategic hits. Um, and, and actually, I'll just, just jump in there as well, because again, that's another thing that plays into the fabric technology where um, maybe the dyes weren't possible to apply to some materials or you know it could be limited, but actually increasingly we're seeing the ability to get those brights uh, applied to way more uh, fabrics than, than possibly you know we were able to, as I say, 5, 10, 20 years ago. That's actually a good uh, transition into uh, sort of talking about the, the DNA of, of Albion's aesthetic. You know, the, the, te- te- excuse me, the technology has certainly opened up design opportunities for you. So how do the key aesthetics of Albion clothing differ from that of, say, Rafa, which, you know, also has that super minimalist feel uh, but Albion is its very own distinct, has its own distinct flavor. So what makes Albion so distinct aesthetically? So, um, yeah, I suppose primarily back to, back to just what we left there, like actually making stuff that is appealing to wear. Um, as, as, as you pointed out, like you could design the best thing possible, but if it looks terrible or, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a nice color, like people just aren't going to wear you know it's not going to be that automatic thing that you reach for so um, making the products which are going to um, function um, really well is where the, the a lot of the design aesthetic comes from uh, making sure we've got the pockets in the right place and you know the, the fit is really good um, is the real driver for us um, and then um, on top of that this desire to create products which are uh, beautiful, which are uh, extremely versatile, so you can wear them uh, year on year or, or mix and match between different outfits um, and get this really timeless longevity uh, into products. Because um, this then plays into the, the the greener, sustainable themes, actually, where you don't just have a product that's that's you know good for one season and it's it's kind of it's out of fashion or you know out of trend and got to get this this season's latest print or whatever it is. Um, so I think we, we, we really work hard on, um, on, on the aesthetic from a um, utilization and desire perspective there, um, how long something's actually going to be loved and, and used. That's interesting because I think uh, the, the notion of clothing uh, as a life cycle for, for a consumer often gets a little bit overlooked. Uh, you know, we, we think about clothing as something I buy I, and I wear until it's no longer wearable and then I throw it away. But what happens before that and what happens after that? Uh, and, and Albion has a specific focus on sustainability uh, in manufacturing, uh, which has taken on an increased importance in recent years across the board. Uh, what is Albion doing to ensure that its clothing and its packaging and practices uh, are ensuring sort of environmental friendliness, sustainability? Um, and, you know, talk a little bit about the life cycle of clothing yeah and this um i think it's um there there are definite kind of parallels i would say between um a 
a piece of clothing and, and a bike itself um, in the way that you um, maintain, care for, in some cases upgrade um, and swap out components on a bicycle, we, we apply that to clothing as well. So when we're actually making something, we're making sure it's using the most minimal impact um, methods, uh, often recycled materials, but the best choice that's going to give the, the, long, the, you know, the best longevity and utilization to the piece. Um, and then following up with um, things like uh, free repair service um, and um, a lot of really good care um, and um, uh, re rejuvenation services to ensure that the products um, have got that longevity. Um, and, and it kind of comes back again to this, um, the initial kickoff of making sure that the, the colors are good, the fit and the cut is going to be really good so actually somebody could sell it on um, it's going to have a um, you know potentially a series of of second third fourth lives beyond actually that initial user um, actually actually getting the, the the initial use out of it i'm curious uh you know one of the the things that has only recently sort of become apparent to me is uh the environmental impact of sourcing materials uh you know, a lot of a lot of companies. You know, obviously, if you want to make money, you have to look for the the least expensive materials uh, that meet your quality standards. And a lot of times, that means getting it shipped to you from across the world, uh, which has its own environmental impact. Uh, where do you source the materials for Albion clothing? We take a uh, a very pragmatic approach to this of sourcing close to the point of manufacture. Um, as you say, it kind of doesn't make any sense to uh, bounce materials uh, around the world. It's, um, it's not only uh, damaging in terms of the, the environmental aspect, but also it's very um, time heavy as well. So we do source um, Italian um, and Far Eastern technical materials um, which then play into where those those pieces are actually uh, are made and manufactured um, we do also do some manufacture here in the UK um, as well um, which is where our, our distribution and um, uh, our warehousing operations are from as well your, your packaging let's talk packaging uh, we've started to see some some changes there too in terms of uh, less plax less plastic. Uh, there's there's alternatives to plastic that are biodegradable, uh, tags and things like that. What's Albion doing there to uh, to sort of reduce the footprint? Um, we've taken all the best um, steps we can at the moment um, in that um, our plastics are bio bioplastics and biodegradable. Um, or same for for all of our paper and cardboard is all recycled. Um, and uses a um, carbon off offset shipping process um, as well. Um, but I think it's probably important to, to highlight that um, sustain. There's no such thing as sustainability in terms of it being a binary thing. It's an it's an ongoing process. So no matter how good you are, you know there's always going to be improvements to be made. So we're definitely looking at what further steps can be done to reduce this impact. Um, I, I think there's some really, really interesting stuff happening in the UK at the moment with um, extended supplier um, responsibility, it's extended um, producer responsibility, which puts much more onus on the, um, on the creator for that product at the end of its life. 
Um, so we are really interested in actually building in um, end of design for end of life, uh, design for uh, repair, rejuvenation, um, and then that obviously goes the same for uh, the packaging. That um, you know we we need to be way more accountable and responsible for uh, the the products we're put, actually putting out into the world, um, and I think that then creates a very interesting um, design. Um, potentially a design aesthetic um, that we can then have um, products which create a new look, a new identity around being environmentally aware and reduced impact. Um, and I think that gets really um, interesting where you've got um, new new aesthetic, new looks, but with um, reduced uh, environmental impact. Like that's that's the, uh, a really exciting space then. Yeah, and I think that's a, an excellent intersection for any clothing company to, to, to strive for is, is that intersection of aesthetics and sustainability. You know, again, going back to the notion that we often overlook the end of life uh, for a product, you know, where does it end up after it, it leaves my hands? Um, does Albion do any sort of a recycling program where if something does come to the end of its life, that people can send it back to you for recycling? We currently do not, but it is a topic that we are talking about an awful lot to figure out what um, what that line could be, what it could look like. Um, it could be potentially lots of different things. Like, I don't, don't want to say too much, but, uh, you know, it could be a buyback scheme, um, a peer-to-peer um, -peer reselling um, uh, platform um, and ultimately you know if a, if a product genuinely does get to the um, end of its life it's completely threadbare and falling apart we've repaired it as many times as we can uh, potential recycling uh, reprocessing phase as well um, and it's probably a, a combination of, of lots of different different methods here actually um, depending on what, what point the product is in its life cycle. But yeah, what, watch this space. Yeah, yeah. It, and it all comes back to that notion of incrementalism. You know, you don't see the change, you know, all at once. It's sort of this process, just like your designs, right, from Rafa on to Albion. Uh, it, it, it all happens slowly. And, so, and, and then at the end of it, you get to it and say, wow, we really did something different. Uh, and that, that's, a neat, that's a neat process. Completely. And, and, and we, we've sort of been testing some of these things out um, initially as well. So I think we're very lucky in that we, um, we have a very hands-on approach to a lot of these things. And that connection with the product is, is absolutely essential, whether it's for the initial design um, or we've done things like repair sessions in a studio where customers could bring in... Um, we, we actually did something on um, uh, Black Friday, um, like a, a buy-nothing um, kind of sort of orientated thing where customers could bring in um, cycle clothing from any brand that we would look to um, uh, repair, rejuvenate, and in some cases actually upgrade. A um, great example of that, somebody bought in something that needed a patch putting on it, uh, but we were actually able to not only patch it up, but, but um, actually have it as a pocket, an additional kind of feature. Uh, so the garment leaves like in better condition than it came in. So yeah, we're having a lot of fun in this space. Before we wrap up, is there anything about Albion cycling that uh, we did not talk about that you think uh, would be worthwhile for our audience to know about uh, in terms of process, in terms of product? Uh, did we miss anything? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, um, 
so um, maybe just touching on the um, what I just mentioned there, um, we are in a really um, unique space um, in terms of our ability at the moment to um, connect with uh, that initial um, uh, concept and sampling and testing process. So we, we were able to actually design, make, uh, manufacture whole samples here hands-on. Um, so you and I could have a chat now and come up with a, a great idea for a, for a, a new, you know, wonderful new cap. And you know, tomorrow I could present you a sample and, and then go out and test ride it. Um, and that is quite a unique thing in, um, in performance wear, in, you know, where it's often a very linear, long process. Um, so we were actually kind of able to act as a, um, a, a real accelerator, race tune garage, if you will, for a lot of these products. Um, so we are actually providing services for, for athletes um, who are able to um, tweak, um, you know, do mild tweaks, or in some cases, kind of radical upgrades uh, to pieces, which are then wear tested, uh, and then will we'll actually slot into mainstream production pieces. So I suppose our, our setup is quite um, quite unique in a way. Pretty fascinating, the idea of a, a clothing race shop. I like that. That's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I, I guess that would, a closer thing, there might be an actual bike production um, facility that will do these things specifically for, for athletes uh, and get feedback that then goes into the, the mainline production. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a really exciting space here. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'd love to love to come out and check out your facility at some point. Uh, and if uh, if folks are looking to uh, find Albion on social media, where can they find them? We are on um, Albion Cycling on Instagram, um, and same for the website AlbionCycling.com. Um, yeah, look us up, give us a shout. Um, yeah, it'd be great to, to hear from people. Yes. Wonderful. And, and if you all have questions, uh, about Albion cycling or about any of the tech podcast episodes I have done so far, feel free to reach out to me at Brown tie Dan, or of course you can reach out to ruler magazine at ruler magazine. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We're always interested to hear questions, uh, comments about, uh, the folks we talk about, talk to on the podcast. And if you of course have recommendations for topics you'd like us to cover we'd love to hear that too graham thank you so much for joining me today it was a pleasure absolute pleasure thank you for the invite and for those of you listening thank you for taking the time and we will catch you on the next episode of the ruler tech podcast Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 